0: on the Media Law podcast this week, the fallout from the Gatwick drone fiasco and its coverage in the tabloids. We talk about a new defamation case on the public interest defence and Philip Green's injunction is back in the news. Hello and welcome to the Media Law podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. Paul Rags back with me again today. Hi Paul. Hi Tom. We're thinking about the balance between the public interest and individuals' reputations this week. Uh, Listeners will no doubt remember the fiasco at Gatwick Airport just before Christmas when a drone grounded flights overnight, causing disruption to thousands of passengers. Then, on the 23rd of December, the tabloid press went wild because Surrey police had arrested two individuals in connection with the drone following a tip-off. Thus, we saw headlines excoriating the pair, including the unforgettable Daily Mail special Are These the Morons Who Ruined Christmas? Now, it hasn't been long since we sat down on the podcast and talked about pre-charge and pre-trial anonymity for criminal suspects in the context of the Cliff Richard case. But given what happened before Christmas, I think we need to talk about that again, Uh, We'll also be talking about a new case in defamation, Economu and Defratus, which was handed down at the end of November, and which is the first appellate treatment of Section 4 of the Defamation Act 2013, which introduced the new defense of publication on a matter of public interest. So, more of that later. But first, Paul, were these the morons who ruined Christmas? And should we even have had it suggested to us that they might have been?
1: Well, clearly they weren't the morons that ruined Christmas because they had a cast iron alibi to demonstrate that they were not the people who were flying the drones. Uh, if in fact there were drones that were flown anywhere near Gatwick, because of course that's another suggestion to have emerged. It's a difficult one. I am, I am, I am sympathetic to the press, and if I can play devil's advocate um i can see the dilemma for newspapers um clearly whatever caused the fiasco at gatwick it had a profound effect on those hundreds of thousands of passengers uh, who were caught up in it not only those that um, uh that, that were there at the time but those that missed out on seeing loved ones over christmas etc and i can see from the newspapers point of view that the minute they got wind there were suspects involved, I can see why they were so desperate to publish the story, uh, to link everything together, to give a sort of sense of, of blame or, or whatever else. What's completely unfortunate here though, of course, is that the people that they chose to name and shame had nothing to do with what happened at Catwick.
0: And so how on earth did they manage to get this so badly wrong?
1: I'm not entirely sure it was the newspapers that got it wrong in, in in one sense. I mean, it seems that the police were the ones that got it wrong by actually arresting these people when it seems that they had no grounds on which to do so or, or arresting them in circumstances uh, of uh, an allegation rather than something more substantial. Um, but we might criticise the press, I think, for jumping the gun I suppose the difficulty is that they all jumped the gun at the same time. And as as we're told, the couple that were arrested were confronted with the horror of not only having to deal with the police, but also the crowds of press that emerged in front of their house.
0: And, of course, the inevitable fallout on social media, because once you get headlines in the national press suggesting that these are the morons who ruined Christmas. You can imagine what then happens to them in cyberspace,
1: but, and in and in real life as well. I mean, that I'd seen them um, uh, a statement that they released that was uh, published on a number of different forums, but including the BBC, where they were protesting their innocence, but also describing the trauma that they had gone through as a consequence of of this and how it had ruined their Christmas. And I think we, of course, have to feel incredibly sympathetic uh, towards them. The the question that arises, I think, is whether this is another incident that makes us think there should be something like a a second Leveson inquiry or whether there should be a greater political pressure put on newspapers to form or to join an independent press regulator, or whether this is just a horrendously unfortunate situation, a kind of perfect storm that is unlikely to be repeated often again.
0: Well, i would inclined to the view that this is entirely likely to happen again. Given that we know, I mean, even if we just stick to the the very similar circumstances, drones are becoming more and more and more popular. Mm. We don't yet have either sufficient legal regulation of them or sufficient practical defenses at our airports to be able to stop them causing disruption. Um, And now anybody who does feel like, for instance, staging some sort of political protest against uh, additional runways or carbon footprints or whatever, um, knows exactly how to do it. Get yourself a drone, fly it somewhere in the vicinity of the airport, make sure it flies up for 10 minutes at a time, then lands in a bush somewhere where nobody can see it, (laughs) and just do that all day. So I think it's entirely likely that it will happen again. And what you'll get then are, similarly, the police reacting, trying to find the suspects because they're under pressure to be able to reopen the airport. Um, And inevitably more people are going to be dragged into this. So I think the idea this is just a perfect storm, and I can see why it's appealing, but, um, you know, whenever the the press do something wrong, it's, uh, oh, it's a unique circumstance. Oh, it's a perfect (laughs) storm. Oh, it'll never happen again. We don't need to be properly regulated, and that is is the argument that we hear time and time again. This was just; oh, it was really unfortunate. Um, we live in a different world now, a world where this is possible, and the press need to be able to to find a way to deal with it.
1: Yeah, and do we think that a system of independent press regulation, for example, if it was in place now, could have prevented? this kind of incident from happening, this kind of reporting?
0: Well, the cynic will say uh, no, because here what we have is a a story of massive national importance. And if we think about this contextually, it's one of the few points this year where a couple of days went by and there was literally nothing to say on Brexit because the prime minister had suspended um, the Brexit vote before christmas and the commons was in was in uh, recess for the christmas vacation so for once you know a few days were going by and there was there was nothing really to report on and then this big drone fiasco happened um and of course the newspapers jump on it because apart from anything else they have to a satisfy public curiosity in what's going on and b sell some newspapers um so yeah, I I I I very much doubt whether an independent regulator able to deal with things after the fact would really have uh incentivized newspapers not to run the story. I think they would have run it anyway. Uh and then if it turned out to be wrong, well maybe we have to apologise, maybe we have to pay some damages, whatever. Um But I I don't see mere regulation of the press, even if it's independent, being terribly effective in these circumstances.
1: So one of the questions for us to think about then is how the blame, as it were, should be apportioned here between the police that jumped the gun and the press that jumped the gun. If the police hadn't been so quick to move as they did, then there would have been no story anyway for newspapers to report. However, and what compounds the problem here is the tone of the newspaper reports, because I I think that's probably one of the key issues here. The way that particularly the Mail on Sunday had reported in such aggressive terms, but then the question to ask ourselves is, given the strong feeling about the closure of Gatwick, even if this report had been done in very mild and moderate terms, simply to say individuals have been arrested, would that have prevented what happened to the two individuals named?
0: Well, that's a good question. I mean, we you're absolutely right about the tone because the tone whipped up into a frenzy and already worked up public, particularly amongst those whose travel plans had been disrupted um, by what had happened. It's one thing for a newspaper to say, well, look, a couple of people have been arrested, but as yet we don't know whether they really had any connection to this. Um, and quite another, I think, to present the story in a way. And I know it was technically it was a question that was asked: Are these the morons who ruined Christmas? But there's a very strong suggestion that they probably are, because otherwise the paper, the pictures wouldn't be over the front page of every paper. Yeah. Um, the tone implies not only guilt, but because it's coming from. A newspaper, a set of newspapers, who've got the journalistic resources to determine the truth. The implication is we know these are who the people because we've gone and investigated, and you can trust us. And unless newspapers you know, present stories in ways that make the public think they can trust them, they'll never sell the newspapers. So there's there's a deliberateness there.
1: I think this probably brings us quite neatly onto Cliff's Law. And what's been called Cliff's Law. So Cliff's Law, for anyone that can't figure it out, is a, is obviously a, a, an overt reference to the Cliff Richard case that you and I discussed at great length uh, in one of our previous podcasts, uh, and we took different positions on it. And the, the suggestion is that if we had something like Cliff's Law in place, Cliff's Law being uh, something that would gag the press from being able to name uh, suspects, except in exceptional circumstances, uh, these two individuals would never have been named and the, the harm that's been caused to them by being named could never have happened. Discuss.
0: Well, I wanted to uh, ask a question of you about the Glyph uh, Richard case and its relationship with this one, because... We both, we disagree on the right outcome for the Cliff Richard case, but where we do agree is that there is, broadly speaking, public interest in identifying criminal suspects pre-trial, possibly even pre-charge in some circumstances. For instance, in circumstances where an individual is suspected of some historic sexual offence which is what was underlying the original investigation into Cliff Richard, of course. Yeah. Now, if you've got a case like this, that is uh, with the drones, it's markedly different because you're not in a situation where you think, well, maybe some other historic victims might come forward. Um, It's not like suddenly, you know, some small airport in the middle of nowhere is going to come up and say, actually, we had a drone strike in 1983, and we think it might have been these two as well. Um, This is not a search for more complainants to make it possible to bring a prosecution. So one of the key justifications for naming suspects pre-charge doesn't seem to me to be in play. Um, in the case of these two individuals.
1: I agree with that. I think another reason why I'm sympathetic to the press in these circumstances is that in the Cliff Richard case, one of the complaints that had been made was, uh, and one of the things that the court noted, was the fact that the police hadn't asked the press to name Cliff Richard. There was no sort of operational dimension to naming him. Mm. And of course, that's what you're. Uh, that's what you're saying here. However, although you're right in the example that you give, Tom, clearly it may be that other people might come forward and say, "Well, these people were also involved with drones at another airport last week, which went unreported," or there might be further evidence that comes out. I suppose the difficulty is. If we start trying to second guess what evidence we think can arise from a newspaper report, we might box ourselves into a corner, which is one of the difficulties that I have with Cliff's law, is trying to presuppose what might actually come out of a report when actually we don't know what witness evidence may be available, might be available to us, might come forward as a consequence of the newspaper story well, on the other
0: hand we've got i think a quite clear danger here that we simply engage in a fishing expedition um well we're going to throw a couple of suspects names out there and see if anybody comes forward with anything it, it, it seems to me that there's there's at least a risk of that going on and i wonder if one way to combat that with the so-called cliff's law is to at least have a presumption against um, pre-charge uh, against revealing people's names pre-charge, um, which could be if the press really thought it was important, and perhaps in conjunction with the police for operational reasons, overridden maybe with some sort of judicial oversight. That bit will be controversial.
1: That would that would be controversial. Um... OK, well, look, there's lots lots of things that come out of that point that you've just made, which is a really good one. Um, I mean, certainly, I think it's important to stress that uh, whatever we might say about Cliffs Law, no one should be saying that the press needs more power to accuse individuals. Certainly, we don't want a sort of trial by media scenario. Um, and I don't want to be understood as as saying that. So... Defamation laws exist uh, for a reason and contempt of court laws exist uh, for a reason.
0: If these uh, two maligned individuals take exception, as uh, we know they have, to their treatment at the hands of the media and decide to uh, take some legal action in response, should they bring a privacy claim or a defamation claim? Why not both? Why not, indeed? Um, I get the impression the courts are not terribly amenable to uh, people bringing both sorts of claims at the same time. No doubt it could be tried. Um, But we've seen several instances of the courts deciding to, once a case has been brought in, in one or other or both, making the claimant decide or the court simply deciding for the claimant saying, well, no, this isn't a privacy claim. This is a defamation claim. Yeah. Um, It's been a while since that happened. Um, Well,
1: the reason why I might defend both claims in these uh, circumstances, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but I might actually uh, divide up what's happened into that uh, familiar dichotomy of speech and conduct. Oh. and suggests that what's problematic in terms of the speech is the allegation of wrongdoing, which has caused uh, serious harm um, to reputation. And then I might see where that claim goes. Um, and then in terms of the conduct, to say the conduct of the both the police and the press, the police in uh, revealing the identity of the suspects to the newspapers, um, which I presume is what has happened here, and the newspapers in then divulging that information uh, has led to serious harm to the individual's um, family and private life. Mm. So... I'd be minded to say there are two causes of action here that relate to two different um that relate to two different incidents, which although related to each other, are separate and have had separate effects.
0: Hmm. It's an interesting thought I mean, my instinct right from the from the moment I saw the headline and maybe it's just because I look at, looked at this and the, through the eyes of an old school common lawyer was to see the headline and think right that's a libel claim um and there would certainly be advantages to framing it as a libel claim not least traditionally Um, one gets a higher measure of damages for a successful libel claim than one does in privacy. I know there have been some movements in that in recent years, but I think as a general rule, that still holds. There's a kind of presumption that introducing reputation is more valuably damageable uh, than invading privacy for all the sense that it makes. Um, So my instinct had been that this really was a libel claim, but then Hugh Tomlinson, QC, writing on Inform, a man who certainly knows what he's talking about in respect to these sorts of cases, framed it more or less instantly as a Cliff Richard-style privacy problem. Yes. So it's interesting to see that uh, the, uh, this really does lie in that grey area between those two causes of action where uh, either could be – it's the sort of thing we would traditionally set as a problem question in a media law exam, isn't it? Um, here, here is Here, the issue. You can throw it out to the students and say, you decide the best way to deal with this.
1: Well, it might be as well. that. If, I mean, I, I have to admit that although I've seen the, the Mail on Sunday headline, I haven't read the Mail on Sunday story, um, apart from seeing summaries of it from from elsewhere. And I haven't seen the rest of the coverage from different newspapers. But it might be that some newspapers uh, may have committed libel against the individuals in the way that they framed the information, in the way that they put it. But mm-hmm. others haven't. And the ones that haven't might nevertheless fall into the category of tort us by reason of interfering disproportionately with the privacy involved.
0: And you know what's really interesting, Paul, is if we do go down the route of this ever turning out to be a defamation claim, without there being the possibility of a truth defence, because we know these people were not guilty, um, then we're squarely going to be in the realms of a public interest defence on the basis this was a matter of public interest. And on the note of public interest offences in Section 4, this would be a good time, I think, uh, to bring in a discussion of economo. Now, uh, I sat down with uh, virtually with uh, Professor David Rolfe of the University of Sydney the other day to talk about the economo case. And this is what we had to say. I'm joined now for a discussion about a case called Economo and Defratus by Professor David Rolfe of the University of Sydney. Hi, David. Hello. Um, Economo is a case that was uh, handed down in November 2018. It's the first case that we've had at appellate level on Section 4 of the 2013 Defamation Act. Um, It's worth... Setting out uh, what happened in the case by way of background. The claimant had been accused by the defendant's daughter of rape. The police and the Crown Prosecution Service were satisfied after an investigation that he should not be prosecuted. The claimant then brought a private prosecution, which was later taken over by the CPS against his accuser for perverting the course of justice. A few days before her trial was due to start, his accuser, who suffered from bipolar disorder, took her own life. Thereafter, the defendant, the father of the deceased, embarked on a media campaign questioning the uh, CPS's decision to proceed with the prosecution that, in his view, had led to his daughter's suicide. In the course of this campaign, the defendant made a number of statements published in national print and online media outlets that, the claimant argued, were defamatory of him in that they suggested generally indirectly, that he was guilty of the rape of which he had been originally accused. So, the claimant brought a claim for defamation against the defendant in respect of these statements. In the High Court, the claim failed because, according to Mr. Justice Warby, the defense of publication on a matter of public interest, contained in Section 4 of the Defamation Act 2013, was made out. The claimant then appealed. The Court of Appeal, giving judgment in late November, dismissed the appeal, upholding the trial judge's interpretation of Section 4. Section 4 of the Defamation Act 2013 provides it is a defense to an action for defamation for the defendant to show that A, the statement complained of was or formed part of a statement on a matter of public interest, and B, The defendant reasonably believed that publishing the statement complained of was in the public interest. We should note for the benefit of non-lawyers who might be listening uh, that for the purposes of defamation law, published simply means communicated to any other person by any means. It does not need uh, to have been published to the public at large. As a general rule, to which, of course, there are exceptions, making a statement in private conversation to a single other person would count as publication in the eyes of the law. Right, so, bit of a mouthful, but there's the background. Um, What was key in this case, uh, at least I think, and and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, David, um, is that whereas the Section 4 defense... Uh, has a a predecessor in common law, the Reynolds defense of responsible journalism. Whereas that old Reynolds defense was aimed at ensuring that journalists undertook their investigations responsibly. Here we have a situation where um, an individual who is not a journalist, just a private citizen, ends up pleading a defense that's very similar to the Reynolds defense, but who has not undertaken any significant investigation to determine the, the truth of the matter. Um, so we have, for the first time, someone who's not really attempted to do any great investigating other than going on what his daughter had told him into uh, the truth of the matter, succeeding in a in in pleading the defence,
2: I mean it depends on where you want to start because I mean if you look at the text of section four, even though it is predicated upon replacing Reynolds, and the court does in this case say that in interpreting it and applying it, you can take into account the sort of the jurisprudence that developed around Reynolds. Um, it's clear that in its terms is not limited only to the statutory defense is clear in its terms that it's not only limited to, to journalists, it's, you know, available to anyone who wants to make a claim about, you know, that they've published on a matter of public interest. Um, what I think is then interesting and I think is done in a fairly nuanced way is looking at, well, where you have someone who is not a journalist, um, what sort of steps should that person in and of themselves take in order to, you know, do the best that they can within their parameters? Um, and so obviously, you know, and we can sort of talk more about this, the, the the tone of the way in which the allegations are raised, the sort of the substance of what's being said. So here, you know, the idea that really the thrust of uh, – Freitas's comment was, or you know, expression of repeated expression of public concern was the conduct of the CPS, um, as opposed to um, Mr. Economu and you know, his conduct, but really sort of trying to engage with you know, that issue of the propriety of the CPS's conduct in in pursuing this. Um, So, questions of you know, tone, the direction of. The, the content the sources that were relied upon um and you know allied then to the expectations that someone making a statement to them a non-journalist making a statement to the media what sort of expectations they could have in relying upon the media to do some checking um before publication i think that's i think that's interesting um because one of the things that always struck me about Reynolds is that Reynolds, is a sort of responsible journalism privilege, particularly for professional journalists, emerged at a time when, you know, you have disruption in media practices, and you know the possibility emerging of citizen journalists and private individuals, you know, newsmaking and setting agendas and things like that. Um, and so, Section Four sort of not being based, I suppose, so squarely upon the idea of, you know, journalists, but applying more broadly, um, has, I think, some greater scope to actually protect, you know, freedom of speech. And I think one of the things in the judgment which we might want to sort of talk about is the sort of fairly nuanced discussion of the balancing and the alertness on the part of the judges here to the balancing between protection of reputation and freedom of speech, which... um, you know, from a sort of jurisdiction which alone amongst Western democracies doesn't have a human rights <laughs> framework in place, um, looks very refreshing in our defamation case. What's occurred to me as you're saying that is that, of course, although the Reynolds
0: case itself didn't really foresee citizen journalism... I think some of the subsequent jurisprudence that applied Reynolds did when Mm. you see, for instance, cases where you have much smaller media outlets, journalists at local newspapers and so on and so forth being sued for defamation. And the court's saying you have to take into account the resources that are available, the the, the lesser amount of investigating that can be done by a local newspaper compared to a, a national broadsheet, for instance. Yeah. Um, and by extension, you know, once that principle has been established, it's not terribly controversial to say, well, if you're going to apply it to a citizen journalist, then you have to lower the standards yet yet further as in terms of what you can reasonably expect from them.
2: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think the perspective I suppose I come from is that we in – particularly in New South Wales, which we've now sort of exported nationwide here, have had a sort of statutory defence of qualified privilege um, since at least 1974. And some other jurisdictions like Queensland have had a variant going back to 1889. But it's the New South Wales experience which has been sort of exported nationwide in Australia. And it's that is a sort of test which is supposed to turn upon the reasonableness of the publisher's conduct in the circumstances of publication. Um, And again, it's not sort of directed towards journalists per se. And in one of the reforms that occurred, there was an introduction into this, you know, the defense of Lord Nichols' sort of 10-point list from um, Reynolds itself as a sort of, you know, uh, list of indicators of when someone's acted reasonably in the circumstances of publication. The interesting thing about that, as you say, that jurisprudence flowing on from Reynolds becomes sort of fairly attuned and sensitive to the particularities of publishers, the resources and the sort of the expectations that you can have of particular publishers. The interesting experience in New South Wales in particular is that that defence, although it's been in place for a very long period of time and is supposed to be a beneficial, of, you know, defence and should in effect achieve similar sorts of results, because of the disposition of judges applying it, has <laughs> actually proven to be, you know, a very futile defence. It's a sort of frequently pleaded but rarely successful defence, um, and in fact, under the 1974 legislation. Um, which was replaced in 2005, so it was in operation for 30 years. Um, there are only five cases in which the defence got up, um, and so one of the things that has always struck me about the Reynolds jurisprudence as it's evolved, and you see this continued it through the judgment in Economo, is this sort of judicial sort of sensitivity to how people actually go about communicating and the sort of the constraints that people have. In the way in which they communicate, um, whereas the experience that we have in Australia is that, you know, you know, we've had judges openly, sort of, in court describe our sort of variant of the defence as a council of journalistic excellence or perfection. Which, you know, if a journalist have to mm. be excellent or perfect, the defence is never going to get up. I mean, obviously, the statute just talks about reasonableness. Um, but I think the role of the role of disposition, um, judicial disposition in the application of this, from an outside perspective, is incredibly important because you know mm-hmm. it has a material impact on on outcomes. And I mean, I think Economo is an example of that. But it's you know located in this part of this jurisprudence that flows on from Reynolds, which cumulatively I think demonstrates that sort of judicial disposition to actually engaging with, well, look, you know, obviously we have to have freedom of speech. People need to be able to talk openly about matters of public interest. And that will sometimes, you know, cut across or trench upon people's reputations. And that's unfortunate and difficult and you know when should people be allowed to do that and when shouldn't they be allowed to do that and I think that does require some sort of you know fine-grained sort of analysis that's sort of sensitive and attuned to to these sorts of issues um, so from a from the perspective of someone coming from a jurisdiction where these defenses are very difficult to make out <laughs> even under statute it's um it's heartening to see um, that sort of you know level of i suppose engagement. There is obviously
0: free speech concern here and reputational concern. so how does one go about striking that balance? I think what's really one of the things that people said when the defamation Act 2013 was passed as a deficiency about it was that it made no attempt to define public interest nor to set out what that balance between free speech and public interest and, on the other hand, individual reputation ought to be.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think it's... I think it's difficult in advance to actually, you know, identify what is going to be in the public interest. And I think that that the definitional task would be very difficult, and I think you'd end up in a sort of um, you would end up having to have a sort of fairly open textured statutory definition, which would then you know turn upon judicial application. Um, so, I mean, here, given the sort of the public aspects of what's occurred, um, with you know decisions to prosecute by the CPS, the sort of the public nature of the original allegations that have been made against the claimant, um, I'm not sure necessarily that defining here the public interest would be so much of a A problem. Um, The difficulty is, of course, once you actually sort of descend to the particular of, you know, the particular exercise of balancing protecting reputation and freedom of speech. And that I think can only be done in a very fine grained way in a particular case.
0: Is it perhaps relevant to that determination that the trial judge didn't ascribe the highest level of defamatory meaning to the statements that he was complaining of. Hmm. The, the judge did not say the libelous sting here is that you are a rapist. He said the libelous sting is that there were grounds to investigate, which hmm. is a, a lesser or grounds to suspect that, 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 that he was guilty. And so that's a lesser level the harm that can be done to the reputation of the claimant is of a lesser level, um, Mm. which requires then a less exacting public interest standard um, in order to justify the publication.
2: Yes, but I mean, I think that's right, but the underlying seriousness of the allegation you know, the sort of the line of country that you're dealing in here to sort of accuse someone of, I you know, not of being a rapist, but still being reasonably suspected of being one or, you know, should be the subject of investigation. The nature of the underlying offence there that the person is being, you know, associated with is of a serious sort of nature, you know. Same line of country, I suppose, as sort of murder or a pedophilia, so sort of serious, you know serious criminality. And so while the accusation is not one of, you know, actual commission but a lesser state, that would have a diminution of the public interest, but that might be just a question of degree Um, rather than sort of, you know, I think you could argue about the extent to which that sort of diminished... The public interest. It might do that, but only sort of incrementally. Um, it's extraordinarily sort of difficult, I think, here. And I mean, one of the things that I suppose this shows up is the sort of very binary nature of a lot of defamation law, um, which, yeah. you know, one person wins, one person loses, you know, one person, you know, is either permitted to do what they've done or the other person gets a remedy in the form of an award Mm -hmm. of damages.
0: And it was a weakness with Reynolds that
2: I remember was the subject of a piece, a
0: short commentary piece by Jonathan Code a few years ago here, who's an affirmation solicitor, Mm -hmm. um, when he said the problem with Reynolds is you end up with uh, a, a claimant if the defense succeeds, you have a claimant who has been defamed, uh, and and wrongfully so, um, who has not only not been able to vindicate his reputation, but who has also lost the case and incurred all the associated costs with having lost the case. Mm. Um, And that is not something that this new Section 4 defence solves at all. If anything, it exacerbates that problem. Um, whether as a society we we want to take that route or we want to go back to a pre-Reynolds situation of Ascribing more value to reputation than to statements that may be in the public interest is uh, a decision for the politicians. But insofar as they've been involved, Parliament has decided to go down the let's protect speech route. But mm. certainly, it exacerbates that very acute problem from from Reynolds. Um, and I wonder. And I put this, um, I put this to a, a senior judicial figure, shall I say, that I was speaking to um, within the last couple of weeks. That um, one of the issues is in the apparent infrequency of the remedy of declaratory judgment, mm. where uh, it, it is entirely possible for the court to, um, in say, instead of or perhaps of as well as an award of damages, issue a statement declaring that the uh, defamed individual has been defamed and that their reputation ought to be vindicated. Mm -hmm. Um, And perhaps, now, one only gets a remedy when one wins the case, and that's the problem with the the Section 4 defense, it prevents you winning the case. But might that be a, a sensible further reform to say, even if you've lost your claim because section 4 succeeded you could still get a declaratory judgment that vindicates your reputation
2: yeah look i think in you know, i think sometimes the the solutions to a number of the problems of defamation law might actually be addressed by sort of taking you know a closer look at the sort of the remedies that people might actually want or remedies that might actually sort of, you know, address the fundamental sort of problems. I mean, I think the possibility of a declaration of falsity, um, as a remedy, um, is a sensible one to be canvassed. So, um, I know that the New South Wales law reform commission canvassed this in 1995 in their report on defamation law. Um, One of the difficulties, certainly in the Australian context, but I assume that this is a problem shared in other jurisdictions, is that um, when media outlets finally come to (laughs) the crunch, they don't tend to like alternative remedies, um, particularly sort of court-ordered corrections or retractions or things of that nature. Um, But I think the declaration of falsity is a very Um, useful idea to actually investigate. As you point out, the difficulty is not so much in the case where the person, you know, wins and, you know, could get a declaration instead of, you know, an award of damages or an addition to, Um, but in cases like, you know, the one that we're talking about. So the the problem is in cases like this one where you have um, no defense of truth raised Um, so obviously you've got a presumption of falsity, but if someone doesn't, you know, as a defendant, um, put in, put on a defense of justification, if they don't set out to prove that it's true, um, I suppose one of the issues that you've got there with a declaration of falsity in that set of circumstances is, you know, you've got the, do we allow the presumption of falsity then to transform into a declaration of falsity, um, and so we might, want to, we might want to think about what potential problems might arise from that um, because obviously I don't think that there's a problem in circumstances where, you know, someone, you know, a publisher sets out to prove that something's true and they fail to make that out and they obviously then lose that defence. Mm. If they've pleaded that and they fail at that but they succeed on a publication of a matter of public interest defence, then there's no, I think or well, there's less likely to be an injustice to the publisher in that circumstance having a declaration of falsity against them. But if a publisher yes. doesn't set out to prove that something's true, the sort of the we might want to think about what the potential implications are of transforming a presumption of falsity into a declaration of falsity. Yeah. Um of course, any
0: Americans listening in who are not familiar with uh, English-Australian um, defamation law will doubtless be scratching their heads thinking, why on earth is it that the defendant would have to prove this anyway? Why, surely, uh, innocent till proven guilty, freedom of expression being important, should claimants not bear the burden of proving that what was said about them was false? Mm. Um to which of course, the answer is we do have such a doctrine at least in English law, and you can tell me whether you also have it in Australia malicious falsehood of um yes so uh, and under that doctrine, the claimant does bear the burden of proving what is said is uh is, is false um but because of that nobody ever uses it um people bring their claims in defamation in, instead um but I guess uh, whilst that would. Resolve the uh, uh, the problem we've just identified with the declarations of falsity. Um, it would open up a, a whole new set of problems that I don't think that uh, jurisdictions uh, in which we do our work are uh, really ready to handle yet.
2: No, look, I mean, number of libel reform processes. You know, both. You know. In the United Kingdom and in Australia and elsewhere, of you know, considered, possibly not in great detail or with much seriousness, reversing the onus of proof of falsity, um, but it doesn't it doesn't really go anywhere. I don't think there's an there's an appetite for it. There certainly didn't seem to be an an appetite in the process that led up to the 2013 Defamation Act. So I think we within the Commonwealth we can sort of regard that as fairly. Fairly settled, I think.
0: (laughs) I think you're absolutely right. Well, thank you, uh, David Rolfe, for joining us uh, for that discussion. And uh, we'll be back after this. Right, so we're back, and it's time to do the news. Paul. What's in the news? We've had uh, Philip Green back in court.
1: Uh, We have had Philip Green back in court. So um, you remember in our last uh, podcast, we were talking about um, Lord Hain disclosing the identity of Philip Green as the person who uh, was at the centre of what the Daily Telegraph called the British Me Too scandal. Um, so Philip Green had initially gagged the Daily Mail from revealing um, these allegations that had been made against him and Peter Hayne uh, decided to stand up in Parliament and tell the world that it was Philip Green who had this um, injunction. Um, Green has decided to end the litigation against the Daily Telegraph. He is now... Um, that litigation has come to an end, so the injunction that was in place has now been raised. Um, Newspapers like the Mail Online, um, in an article on the 29th of January, were speculating that this meant Green was going to go after the individuals who had signed their non-disclosure agreements um, to insist that they uh, do not disclose any information relating to him. And since then, the Sunday Telegraph, and in fact the Daily Telegraph, has reported similar things of uh, witnesses receiving aggressive letters from Greens lawyers. Interestingly, uh, Hayne himself is facing some difficult questions um, from the House of Lords. The House of Lords Standards Commissioner has said that Hayne is under inquiry for alleged breach of the code in relation to declarations of interest, and you remember this was because, um, after Lord Hayne stood up in the in Parliament, it transpired that he has this relationship with the law firm representing uh, at least one of the individuals, but I think all the individuals uh, who signed the NDAs, uh, a firm called Gordon Dads. Uh, This is something he's always denied. He's always denied that uh, he knew Gordon Dads were involved, which I think we've all struggled to understand how he couldn't have understood that um, if he had, as he suggested, uh, been closely following the case. Hmm.
0: So we can now talk about, if we desire... Philip Green being this individual who was named because we now know it definitely was him because he's discontinued the action. Uh, he may take some further legal steps and Lord Hayne is under investigation within the House of Lords.
1: Yes, and Lord Hayne s- says uh, that he feels um, vindicated uh, for naming Sir Philip Green and he is entirely unrepentant.
0: Yeah, well, let's see if the House of Lords vindicated. Hmm. Uh, In other news, uh, we have a libel judgment, still political news, libel judgment came down uh, this week. The Labour Shadow Justice Secretary, Richard Bergen, uh, brought a claim uh, against The Sun for uh, reports that he played in a band uh, that had Nazi connotations. Um, and this was because the band played in front of uh, uh, some signage that featured the letter S in the font that the son alleged was the same font as used by Hitler's SS. Um, Virgin said that His band was a tribute act to Black Sabbath and was simply using the same font in the same way as Black Sabbath had on one of their album covers. And there was absolutely no Nazi connotation behind it. Anyway, the court agreed uh, with Richard Bergen. They've awarded him £30,000 in damages. Uh, So not the highest libel damages that you'll see, but a sizable sum. Uh, which he says he's gonna spend hiring an intern for uh his office. So all's well it ends well.
1: <laughs> That's gonna be the bizarrest libel story we've had in many a long year.
0: It's been a while since we've had a good old Nazi themed party, isn't it? It takes us back to the uh you know, the Healy days of two thousand and
1: eight, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. It's almost as good as the mansion Harold. Defamation claim. She's still got to be one of my favourites.
0: If we but had time, Paul. (laughs) Unfortunately, we don't. So, uh, Paul and I will say goodbye. Bye. And we'll see you next time. Media Law Podcast is made possible by funding from City, University of London, and Leeds Law School, University of Leeds.